Welcome to the Christ and Classics podcast, where we consider the classics in light of the Christ. My name is Colt Moore, and I'm with my good buddy, Devin Wilkins. And on this episode, we're going to talk about books in general, but specifically in general. <laughs> the, the, question, <laughs> the question that we're going to ask is... We're specifically going to generally talk about specific <laughs> well we're talking about books in general but then the specific question that we're going to hit is <laughs> what dun, dun, dun. what is a great book like by what criteria uh do we determine a book to be great and i mean one other side question we could ask is is this criteria even is it relative or uh, or is it objective so um, it's a, it's a thought. Well, it's, it's, I feel like Devin, this is a conversation that you and I have on, 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 from occasion to occasion where we talk about beauty and goodness in books. And, um, mm-hmm. I, I think the, a phrase that stuck in my mind is like arresting our, our attention, um, uh, books that command us to pay attention to them. Uh, and so a podcast about books, let's, let's talk about books and what, what makes a book great. We we kind of hit this question at the, at the very beginning in episode one. And, uh, Mm -hmm. we thought we'd take uh, a whole episode, 20, 25 minutes or so to discuss it. And then perhaps even talk about a couple of books that we've recently read that we would consider great. And that I think have been considered great by, by, uh, previous readers of old in the past decades and centuries, perhaps. So Devin, so um, are you saying Colton that we can't just think they're great, but other people oh, have to think they're great too. Good. Let's kickstart it. Yeah. Um, a part of what makes a book great is a community of readers. Like Same a, word. a book's greatness. One criteria is that it, um, and we can, uh, address the assumptions in this criteria that I'm going to lay out. One is that it's stood the test of time. It's mm-hmm. been read for uh, a, a pretty long while and mm-hmm. a community of readers, good readers and writers have esteemed them worthy. And uh, there's tangible evidence to, to demonstrate that, that this book has, or work, uh, a group of works have influenced um, mm-hmm. masses, and so we're literally kind of re- reading in a in a in a conversation uh, mm-hmm. that spans m- centuries, decades, centuries, even millennia. What do you think about that? Yeah, kind of like uh, how all kinds of people started reading Twilight. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Twilight? Wait. Yeah, was that a joke? For a little while, paranormal teen romances, they were oh, taking gosh, I remember. America yeah. by storm. That's right. It was like 2008, 2009, whenever I was a freshman and sophomore in high school. All the girls and, and some some fellas were reading Twilight. So good. Yeah. So that, like, that raises the question, like, what's the difference between a, a book series like Twilight and maybe a classical mm-hmm. work like Dracula, both deal with vampires, but what's the difference? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I had a student who wrote a junior thesis on, uh, well, basically comparing those two books, seeking to draw some conclusions along those lines. She compared their their literary content, like uh, the 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 manner in which they were written, the the beauty of the the sentences and whatnot, and just showed how pathetic Twilight was compared to Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, on one hand, just, you know, on the literary level. But then uh, interestingly, one thing that stuck out to me, and this was like 15 years ago, no, 10 years ago. How old was the student? Um, hmm? Was his high school? Yeah, junior. She was a okay, junior. Okay, gotcha. A very astute and bright junior. But she, uh, she also, she drew out several things, but the other major thing that stuck out to me was uh, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, the things that uh, are evil are evil. <laughs> Whereas in Twilight, uh, the protagonists are vampires and it kind of flips good and evil. And uh, it, it, yeah, just not only is it poorly written, but it also throws themes into a tailspin as you have to think about, you know, good vampires and things like that. So if, if I'm understanding you correctly, that uh, a couple of premises in this paper were, uh, were critiquing the Twilight series based on the, the eloquence of language and the inversion of good, good and evil. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that Dracula is going to be around a uh, hundred years from now, and Twilight will have faded from memory long before. Yeah, yeah. So one criteria for uh, determining a book to be great is its time testedness, which is uh, integrated with other other reasons. Like um, it's mm-hmm. it's it's time tested, and it stood the test of time because of literary, eloquent, uh, poetic beauty, and. Mm-hmm theme anthropological themes of goodness and truth um mm-hmm. beauty what does it mean to be a human what does it mean to be evil or 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 good mm-hmm. um uh so like we talked in the first episode um about has significant uh influence on later generations and you've just provided at least a couple of a couple of um other reasons that could even contribute to a, a book's time testedness and which is goodness and beauty um from a, from a humanly anthropological perspective but also from a from a, a linguistic and 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 poetic um pers- perspective why why is that why does poetry and linguistic um rhetorical beauty matter for humans why can't we just get to the point Without all the yeah. uh, seemingly uh, flourishes, frou frou, as, as some would say, <laughs> what's the point of it? Like, right? Just get to the point, right? Maybe. Yeah. What would you yeah. say to that kind of question? Yeah, I mean, I think we're wired for beauty, uh, and we've talked in the past about goodness, truth, and beauty, and how those three form, you know, the the. Uh, a chord, uh, a, a strong chord that is able to, yeah, result in a book that endures. 
And so I think that the time testedness really stands upon that threefold cord or hangs upon that threefold cord, I guess, mm. uh, as a result. Um, so the influence it has on later generations is a result of, of um, the book being good, true, and beautiful in and of itself already. I'm not answering your question, but I've kind of already forgotten what it was because I, I got a, I got sidetracked in my own mind. What can you re, restate? What you yeah, said yeah. So why do we need, I guess, linguistic, rhetorical, poetic <laughs> beauty? Why can't we just Why can't we just have books that just get to the point? You know. Um. Yeah, I think just being created by a God of beauty uh, in his image. I think that, that compels us. Uh, a beauty compels us kind of to our, toward our creator anyway. Um, that's, uh, but not just beauties in the eye of the beholder and whatever you think, but I do think that there's something to be said for, uh, you know, real ordered, ordered beauty. Um, hmm. And beauty, there's a book that we had to read uh, with my old administration called Beauty for Truth's Sake. Um, and yeah, I think beauty arrests our attention uh, because we were created for it. You know, perhaps one might even say we were created for it an ultimate beatific vision. Yeah, yeah. And and that shows up in uh at least right now I'm thinking of a few different ways that could show up in a in a great book. Obviously it could show up in the the kinds of descriptions that an author will use uh with which to portray an individual in terms of his a moral uprightness. He's courageous, uh, for example, or he's loyal. Uh, e even in the descriptions of uh, sceneries of a, of, a, of a hillside, for example, or the rising of the sun, for example. Tolkien's yeah, really great with this in Lord of the Rings. Oh man, you got you got it you got it pulled up there. I'm thinking of the Fellowship. It's it's a um, Fellowship it, of the Ring. It's 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 wonderful, uh, but also in the writing itself. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what you're referring to is maybe the micro and the macro uh, uh, poetic devices. Is that kind of like uh, a particular description on the micro level, but maybe also on the macro level yeah. of how he's piecing together this, this story against the odds and it, how it captures us? And is that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I, I guess I'm thinking, I don't know the technical terms for it, but uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a beauty and a richness in an author who writes with such detail that excites your imagination. It's like he's given you all this fuel. You just got to use your imagination to, to light it, light that fire. And uh, Tolkien, for example, makes it really easy to do that because he's Got so much description of the woods and the trees and the the forest and the fog, and he'll spend pages and pages of on on, on details like that, that that are beautiful. But not only that, 
um, his writing is poetic and it's it's eloquent and uh, at least to our modern 2021st century uh, vocabulary, it's it's a bit archaic at, at times, and that that with it brings uh, an, an eloquence to the to the table as well. Mm-hmm. And um, speaking of Tolkien, I, I I had this thought, and I wanted to ask you. So, if um if if a work is deemed a great book because it raises deep anthropological moral questions, what is a human being? What's what is good? What is evil? What is truth? What is false? And if it also has some sort of aesthetic bearing, like it arrests our attention to to a beauty of sorts, um, and thus has because of these these two matters, they they have lasting significance on on, on uh, generations to come. Now, question: yeah. What about these books that many um, in our day and age would consider modern classics? Like, um, I guess the big softball, easy ones right off the bat to to locate are um, works of Tolkien, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. You've got Harper Lee's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, Steinbeck's you can have Harry Potter. Yeah. That, <laughs> I threw you that, off on that one. Well, I'm just thinking like Harry Potter, it, it, like it's very well written. <laughs> um, it is. It is, uh, but but it doesn't carry the gravitas that. Have you read them all? I've read the first one. Oh, that's my first impression by it. I haven't read. I in fact, I got a good book. I have a they're good written who, to. They're they're written to mature with the main character. So he uh-huh. starts at eleven years old, and by the time you get to the seventh book, he's eighteen, and so the themes and uh, the narrative uh, and the length. Uh, grows and matures with Harry. So if you only read the first one, you might go, oh, that was a nice children's story. But as you work your way through the whole and also see the themes, um, I would even dare to say gospel themes, um, you know, come to a climax in, you know, the end. And I I do wonder if Harry Potter will not only be a flash in the pan and you know for a generation, but I think it might endure. Very interesting because my first impression from the Sorcerer's Stone is this is a this is just it's not just a fun story, but it's a it's a robust story, but n- not as heavy or as 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 the Chronicles. Um, for example, but I haven't read the second one or the third one or the fourth one and following. So that's good for me to, uh, th- I'm glad that you said mm-hmm. that. That's uh, that's really helpful for me. And one benefit that the Harry Potter series uh, has maybe over the Narnia series is that it follows one character. And so yeah, uh, yeah. It, you can think of it maybe more in terms of one, one story, not, not, you know, seven stories. Yeah. Like Narnia is. Um, but it's one story across, you know, seven, um, seven years. And so the depth that you find in maybe one of Lewis's shorter books, you may find across, you know, the whole of, of the, the Potter series and maybe, 
similar to uh, Tolkien in that way, where, you know, if you only read The Hobbit or you only read The Fellowship, it's enjoyable, but you don't quite get uh, everything that you're after. From what I understand, I have not read finished reading all of Tolkien to my shame. I apologize to mm. our many mm. and and loyal <laughs> listeners. <laughs> um, so would you say that uh, a work that is that demonstrates classical themes of anthropology and beauty, goodness and truth could Theology. be on the table to be a part of what I've often heard is the canon of classical literature, but the only thing that separates these modern books from the older ones is just simply time. I mean, Lewis says in... Um, on reading old books. Yeah, on reading old books, his his preface to Athanasius de Incarnatione, um, that... With some fancy um, Latin there. Oh, oh. <laughs> on the incarnation. Oh, on, nice. On the or concerning the incarnation, because you know the Latin "de" could mean a a whole host of things depending upon the context. Yes, tell me more. <laughs> Just like the Spanish did. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, he's ba he basically says he's like, you know, the the oldness of the book doesn't make it good, and hmm. uh, even a newness of the book won't make it good. He said, uh, "Oh gosh, let me just pull the quote up. It's such a fantastic." Little little quote right here. Yeah, sure. um, we can wait. He says, uh, "Quote: People were no cleverer then than they are now." It's good. That's true. They made as now, many mistakes. <laughs> yeah, people were no cleverer than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors, being now open and palpable will mm. not endanger us. Mm. Yeah, two heads are better than one. Not because either is infallible, but because they are they unlikely, unlikely to go, to go in, the in the same direction. direction. Which is so helpful. It's like Homer Homer is not a fantastic Homer's Iliad is not a classic and fantastic simply because it's old. Oh, oh okay, okay. That's a fallacy. <laughs> that's a fallacy. I'm sure right. there were old books that were written that were terrible back then, and we don't know about them because they were all destroyed and not copied by hand because they were so bad. Perhaps, right? Maybe, yeah. Maybe. I mean, like, there are modern books face the same fate, but we just call that going out of print, typically. Or I think your dog's barking. My dog? I have no dog. Oh, you, wait, you mean, you, you mean the dog that loves me whenever I come over to your house? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's waking up my children. Oh. oh. We like to record these late at night. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like we were saying earlier, time itself is not the, the primary criteria. It's more the result of, you know, really uh, good books will stand the test of time. And so... Um, Honestly, I don't read a ton of new books. Uh, I don't read a lot of the, 
the fads, you know. I, yeah, me either. I did not read the Hunger Games when we were in college. No, because movies freaked me out. I just figured, you know what? If it's still around and if, it, if people are still talking about it in thirty years, I'll pick it up. <laughs> but you read the but you read but, the Wing Feather Saga with your children, and you loved it because I, why? What's the difference? So it's a good question. Like other than the content, what's the difference? But because like Wing Feather Saga is a, a, a new series, Hunger Games is a, is a relatively new series. So Devin, for you, what's the difference between reading the Wing Feather Saga and perhaps even reading what you know about the Hunger Games? Yeah, good it, question, Colton. Is there an objective difference there that that, that you could that you could uh, point to, to to help us out in determining the what what a modern classic could be? Okay, I will say I did read the first chapter of The Hunger Games. I sat in Barnes & Noble once and knocked it out just to see what the bus was about. And it was I, on the beauty level. I just wasn't, I wasn't there. Um, I figured, uh, you know, I think the movie, the first movie had already come out and I figured I may end up watching that. <laughs> And enjoy that more than what reading the book, uh, frankly. But with the Wingfeather Saga, large part, I decided I would read it because uh, people that I knew consistently recommended it, uh, that I knew and trusted. Um, the author is somebody that I've grown to trust. Mm -hmm. uh, as, you know, it's coming out of the Rabbit Room with Andrew Peterson, and the Rabbit Room trends toward putting out some pretty quality uh, stuff. I mean, from plays to, to music to books and, and, and beyond. So I, I've, I think there's a trust level that has been slowly built both um, from Peterson and friends themselves, as well as others who have read it. And, all four books have long been out before I ever picked it up. So it wasn't like I was hopping on, uh, you know, something that everyone was doing right then and there. But, um, you know, my kids were asking me, Papa, will you read this to us? You know, so. Yeah. And so I, I did. And I wouldn't have kept reading if it didn't kind of, you know, grab us. And it did. Yeah, yeah. And like those reasons you just gave are really similar to the whole time testedness of of a of a book, especially an old book, because the time testedness comes directly through other readers of antiquity. So for example, Homer is picked up by Virgil, mm -hmm. well known poet. Um higher up official in the Roman government who's picked up by the church fathers that, that we that we trust, who's picked up by others throughout the Middle Ages and then the reformers. And so it's constantly being read and reread and referenced in these other works that we're reading. And it's like, oh gosh, if if um if Erasmus and Luther are are, are picking up these books and reading them and and um, speaking about them in their sermon, it's like Wow, what a what's this book about? You know, and so like, mm -hmm. so in your case, it's like you've got trusted individuals, trusted Christian believers with a trusted uh, publishing house, with a trusted author, who's 
over a shorter period of time has has developed a a certain reputation that plays into it. And it doesn't necessarily make it a great book. It may not be around in a hundred years, but I I have been impressed. Yeah. So no, that's, um, that's good. So I, I think I think we've come to the to, to the agreement that the the categories of anthropological um, themes of of humanity mm-hmm. and truth, goodness, and beauty of a variety of sorts uh, are the two driving criteria for determining a great book. Which is still it's it's not like a cut and dry like cookie cutter, like box that we're putting mm-hmm. every, every book into. Um, yeah. I was going to say, oh, you finish your thought. Finish your thought. No, go ahead. I w- go ahead. Okay. I was just going to say that there is no canon. Um, like we refer to the biblical canon. Right. That's a good distinction. There is a biblical canon, but there is no canon of great books. There are going to be, you know, different institutions will have, their list of great books that they that they believe um, their students should read or, or or that they recommend their readers read but uh, the it is fluid and what some may think uh, is necessary others may uh, skip over and uh, you know you can go to I, th- I, th- I can't remember Colton I sent you that that uh, website before something like greatbooks.com or greatbooklist.com or something. Yes. Yep. Um, but they take a whole bunch of the big lists out there. My friend uh, JD showed this to me. They take a whole bunch of those lists and then compare them to find kind of the greatest or the, the least common denominators, you know, so that you can see, Oh, all right. Well, out of like the 10 of the the biggest lists, uh, these are all the ones in common. And I think that's helpful if you're wanting to read, you know, you know, dig into some of the the greats that are most agreed upon. But but at the end of the day, it's fluid and it's not hard and fast. Um, it's And so, and there are going to be some really great works that are skipped over because maybe a people group was, uh, you know, mistreated during a... a a period of history and so yeah the majority of people have not been exposed to it um and that's that's sad and um you know you can find that african americans have been um more and more you know the last i don't i don't know how long but in the classical christian movement there's been some good recovery of oh yeah hey we need to we need to push harder and read some of the uh, classics outside of you know um mere european you know acknowledged greats that kind of thing yeah yeah no that's good that's good um well devin any um i, th- I think it's a i think it's a great way to wrap it up i mean uh we were gonna i was gonna talk about old man in the sea but uh, I think we're running out of time. We could say that for a, for a different time. That's a great one too, man. Uh, yes, it is. It's a it's a it's a fantastic book that uh, I'd love to I'd love for us to go through together at some point. But um, well, Devin, thanks for. Do it. What are you doing tonight at midnight? 
I'm going to do this tonight at midnight. I am. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's it's ten twelve, and I am like two hours past bedtime. I'm like a I'm like a go to bed at eight o'clock kind of guy and wake up at three. You do look sleepy. Do I? No, I don't. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> no. Well, um, you know what? So, you know what'll put me fast asleep? Hold on, before you go there. Oh. <laughs> you know where I'm going? Oh yeah, I know where you're going. Same place you always go. Um, I was just gonna say. If you're if you're helped by this uh, episode, we'd appreciate if you would subscribe. Um, that helps us uh, to to get the word out. And also, um, we have been in the past. We've been releasing two episodes per week. Are we still doing that, Colton? Um, no, we're gonna. That's good. I don't think we addressed that in the, the previous episode. We're gonna be releasing just one episode per week. Because what is that? Um, I think it started this past week, and we'll continue. No, I mean, it. what day of the week? Oh, Monday. Lundi. Monday morning. Huh? Lunes. 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 Lundi. In español. Yes. See, sí. and then um, bec- the reason we're doing that is because we're taking we're going to start taking larger chunks of the books that we read, and so. Um, I, we I can only read so many large chunks, right? And we're we're doing it like for for the Iliad, we're, we're taking it three or four chapters at a time, and uh, I think it's going to help us a little bit better. But I think it's also going to serve you guys who are listening uh, as well, especially you educators or students who are reading through the books that we're discussing. You're going to be hearing more conversation about larger themes and sections that are tied together by various uh, various themes and ideas. Uh, and, um, so that's what we're doing. Uh, we could continue doing the way we're doing the way that we've been doing, which is taking a a one book per episode. Um, and that would be fine, but we're finding that it, uh, we're getting, uh, pretty much in the weeds and, and, and the weeds are great. I love the weeds, but (laughs) I hate weeds. Oh, well, how about let's give me some weed killer. Um, we're in, we're in the. Whatever, I can't think of a, I can't think of a, a metaphor off the top of my head. The nooks uh, and crannies. The nooks and crannies. You get what I'm saying. We're taking larger, larger uh, strides to hit the bigger yeah. ideas of a, of a book. So, and yeah. uh, because of that, we're doing an episode a week. And we changed the name of the podcast from Christ and Classics to Christ and Classics to cure your case of the Mondays. Oh. <laughs> that is not true <laughs> but in theory it might be true so hey it might be true to you oh well, no no uh, we're not gonna go there <laughs> no 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 we're not we're not, not relative we're not relativists but uh, uh speaking of speaking of that you know what's not relative truth is in the eye of the beholder you know what's not what relative about? Devin? and what is not in the eye of the beholder or the ear of the beholder. Is How that amazing Micah Dorsey's version of Be Thou My Vision is. I'm not sure if you've heard it or not, but it's pretty incredible. And so we need to get on his case to kind of, you know, give us a full recording of the entire hymn. And uh, we'll go from there. So. All right, Micah. Let's rock. Take it away.